All right, so yesterday the uh, NDP government in British Columbia here, the Ministry of Health, the doctors of BC announced a new fund, and you've heard about this, uh, you heard it on Mike's show, you've heard it on the news, that will provide $118 million over the next four months. I'm a bit confused about that. Maybe my next guest can help me with this. Uh, to help primary care providers in the province stay open. Amongst other things, Adrian Dix, the Minister of Health, stated that it was the first of a series of changes to how doctors are going to be compensated in keeping us healthy. Here's uh, Adrian Dix on Mike Smith this morning. Those pressures on the system are real, and they put existing practices in jeopardy in many cases. So what this is is a first step to stabilize the system while we build a new compensation model designed to increase attachment and to provide better care to patients. So better care for patients, that's what it's all about. Joining me now is the leader of the opposition, the BC Liberals, Kevin Falcon. Hey, Kevin. George, how are you? Sounds like you got a great show lined up. <laughs> yes. A lot of it I think you're probably specifically interested in, I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Look, let's talk about health care. Uh, you sure. know, $180 million, that's a big, that's a big chunk of cash. Uh, but I'm guessing that's maybe, I saw the news clip of you, it's a short one, but let me tell you, tell me about what, why you think this isn't good enough. Well, I think it's a timid step in the right direction. And look, I always want to uh, you know, be good enough to say when they do something right, to say they've done something right. So I, I don't at all disagree with what they've done. I, I, but I have to be honest and tell the public it's a Band-Aid solution. It's mm-hmm. something we called for, in fact, 44 days ago when we came out with a 10-point plan that included some more dollars to help uh, you know, doctors, family physicians deal with rising operating and overhead costs, which a lot of that, by the way, imposed by the NDP uh, you know, new regulations and costs that they've imposed on doctors. So it's a good step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But there's a bunch of other things they ought to be doing. The thing we have to understand is that the system is truly in a state of crisis. I mean, we have literally on a weekly basis doctors that are leaving family practice and going to either do other forms of medicine, maybe a hospitalist or, or emergency work or what have you, or going right out of the province. And, and this is extremely concerning. So at a time when we've got a crisis and we need really big, bold leadership, uh, we laid out an action plan for them. They took one of those 10 items, which is some progress, but frankly, they got to act with more urgency and speed. But they, the they, patient really is in jeopardy here. They did lay out, Adrian Dick said, that, oh, in four months, uh, we're going to announce another thing that's related to compensation. And this $118 million, although I was a bit confused because the way I saw it, it said four months, but then it said it's good until the end of 2023. So I'm not quite sure how that works with four months, or is it a year and a half? Um, no, no, it's, it, it, it is four months. Okay. So it's, it's until the end of January of 2023, oh, January 2023, which I think may be the confusion. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's $118 million. He said there's going to be other announcements. Uh, uh, you know, maybe he's going to take your 10-point checklist and just do, do all 10 points over the next 10 months. And, you know, I'd be fine with that, quite frankly, because the reason I put it out is because I honestly have come to the conclusion that, you know, like I've said this before, I don't think the NDP are bad people. I think they mean well. I just don't think they know what they're doing. <laughs> and we put this out there to give them a roadmap to say, look, here are some things you could do. And these aren't just my ideas, by the way. They're informed by all the conversations I'm having with docs from right across the province in right. every single part of this province. And I think that, you know, Adrian Dix and the NDP could learn a lot if they'd spend time talking to doctors. So, for example... Leading Victoria maybe once in a while, you know? (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly, because these urgent primary care centers that they've been opening have been a disaster. There's no one staffing them. There's barely any... But that was your idea. That was the uh, BC Liberals' idea. No, 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 it was not my idea. Well, the Liberals... No, just a minute. This is important (laughs) to get this right. All right. What I talked about was divisions of family practice, where we provide supports for doctors that are in the family practice. So they got psychiatric support, they got nutritional support, 
support. They've got other support. This is a model that the NDP moved forward with without consulting with the doctors. And what it's done is further fracture the system. And they've spent all this money opening up a couple of dozen of these places. Uh, and the day they open, they're, they're sitting mostly empty. As Dr. Peter Gladstone in Victoria said, you might as well make them Tim Hortons because there's, because there's nobody. Because no staff. in their second right. term in government, they still have not got a health human resources plan. Now, just think about that for yeah. a moment. They did no planning to say, where are we going to get the people to staff? Where are we going to get the doctors and nurses to staff these places before we go announcing them? So this is my problem. We have an announcement government, not an execution (laughs) government that knows how to get things done. It's like Doug McCallum knows about that concept. Hey, uh, so, but, you know, healthcare costs, we, this is not like a surprise. We knew, we saw this, this train coming, like recent aging population. You yeah. knew this was coming 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. And, and what is, what, what's the current portion of the budget that goes to healthcare right now in British Columbia? About 45%. And what was it 20 years ago? Uh, it was probably about 42% when I left government. So that, that would have been a decade ago. Right. So, so it's, it's not changed that much. Up. But it's gone well, up as far as, as a percentage as a of the budget. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's inching up to it's going to be half the budget uh, very shortly, and this is what is important for British Columbians to realize. So, you know, when I first ran in two thousand and one, and I, you know, retired in two thousand and twelve, the healthcare budget went from just over eight billion to about eighteen billion by the time I left government. And so, it's really important the public understands this is not just about spending more money. We spend a lot of money in healthcare. It's how we're spending that money, and it's about making sure that. We haven't, we're not spending it the way this current government is on more administrators, more bureaucrats, but that we get frontline workers into the healthcare system looking after patients. And that, I think, is the missing link. We need people that understand, have a bit of a business background to know how you can get things done, how you can make sure that you're not administratively bloated so that you actually get a situation where you're getting worse outcomes in care for patients. And that's what I'm seeing everywhere I go in the province right now. Change is tough, and spending more money is tough too, though. So is there a... I've heard this uh, talked about in, in, in my world where... We needed to get to this crisis situation in order for to get in order to get the public on board. In in order for us you know, to get, we're in a healthcare crisis now. People are going, just do what it takes. Just do it. Like nobody even complained or is complaining about the hundred. You're not complaining about the hundred and eighteen million dollars being. You know, there's a blank check. Let's go spend some money. Ten years ago, you might have been thrown out for doing that. Is this about just timing more than anything politically? Well, I think what's happening now is people are really becoming aware. I have never, honestly, and I say this, I, I mean, I, I'm genuinely concerned. That's why we put out that 10-point plan, because I really am concerned that maybe it's just that they don't know how to fix this problem. And it's important that, you know, we provide a roadmap to at least help them, because, well, I think that what they did is a good first step. It's a timid step, and it's a Band-Aid on a patient that's bleeding all over. And, mm-hmm. and we have to have, you know, some bolder moves, and they got to move quicker. The answers are out there. The do- they just have to make sure they're listening to the doctors and the frontline workers. That's how we're going to get to better results. If we continue with universal health care, which it seems like it's been fought in court, it doesn't seem like there's any avenue to go private in this province. We know this, we're stuck with our system that we currently have, it seems. It's going to take more money to improve all aspects of health care. You know, how much money is that going to take? I, I just feel like you can talk about process, you can talk about different ways of doing things, but at the end of the day, who's going to pay for any increase in, in any health care? It's going to be all of us, Right. Of course, it'll be all of us. But, you know, we should not forget that we can innovate like crazy within our system. There are, you know, you can look around the world and you can see in countries like the Netherlands, and Europe, where there's all kinds of things that we can experiment with and that we need to. 
because quite frankly, I want the public to really understand this. Kevin Falcon only cares about patient care. I want to make sure those patients get looked after however we have to do it. And I will try different models, try different things to make sure that those patients get the care they need when they need it. And if we just keep doing more of the same and expect different results, which is what this government is doing, we are not going to get the outcomes that we need for patients. We have to start measuring results and start doing things better. Okay, but, you know, you're talking about government here. You know, we've got a socialized medical system here. Innovation is not what government's known for. Frankly, they should just avoid it, which means private health care. Then we have TELUS who launches their product. They get slapped on the wrist because they're making a bit of money off it. They're told, stop. Uh, So now they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? We have the most socialized health care system probably in the world in Canada, and certainly probably in British Columbia, we have the most socialized health care system. When you look to other... I've talked to other doctors. When you look at Europe, it is there are mostly hybrid systems over there. They don't have look, they have private health care. We don't have them. You can't be innovative the, here. Here, George. Here's the irony: the NDP are sending thousands of patients to private clinics right now. Why? Because they need to get them the care they need. Patients can't wait in the public system uh, for as long as they're waiting. Right. Otherwise, they're literally at risk of uh, medical tourism. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say yes, we should absolutely be doing that private delivery i can tell you none of the patients out there i know care about they just want their problems fixed and we got to make sure that we're providing those solutions and and if private delivery is part of that great let's do private delivery i did it when i was health minister and believe me we never had the scale of problems that we have here today so everything's got to be on the table because what it's all about is patients getting them the results they need and frankly whether they're you know walking in the false creek medical center or walking in the st paul's they don't care they want to be looked after as long as it's paid for by government and as long as it's universally accessible. Those are the key foundations of our system that we want to preserve and protect. All right, Kevin, I appreciate that. That's very candid. I really appreciate that. No problem. Great, great having you. Have a great day. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill today, the rest of this week and all next week. So I hope you're having a good day on this beautiful, sunny August day. It's uh, yesterday the BC Children's Hospital uh, Foundation launched a pet therapy program for healthcare workers. It's a partnership with PetSmart Charities of Canada in efforts to promote physical and mental healing to help address uh, stress involved with providing care during COVID-19 pandemic. So they've really built this program. But what is pet therapy? It's, uh, it's a mystery to me to a certain degree. And to discuss this, Anna Bukovan is the manager of community services for St. John Ambulances, and they've been doing this for a while. Hey, Anna. Hi, George. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, well, tell me a bit about this pet therapy. And uh, you guys have been doing this for a while. What, how does it work? Yeah, so our program started here in BC in 1997. Um, We're all across the province. We have about 800 volunteers. Um, So it's just people going out with their pet companion um, animals. Our program is specific to dogs. And they basically provide just a moment of joy and stress relief to people who might be sick, vulnerable, isolated from their families or their pets, um, just to get their, uh, their spirits back and their mental health a bit improved. So they they literally train these dogs to work with people, and they are they how are they different? These dogs, how do they behave differently? Our dogs really love interacting with strangers. They get excited when they view other members of the public. They get excited when they know they're going to their facilities to visit some of their favorite friends, um, and they just have the, a proper disposition to enjoy this work, interact with people. There's no special training required; just basic hmm. obedience. Um, and then we evaluate to make sure that they have uh, that necessary disposition to do well at this role. So it's, you don't sort of look at a dog and go, okay, that's going to be a good pet therapy dog. Yeah, exactly. So we put them through a series of exercises where mm-hmm. we test their um, reactions to stuff like food, other dogs, strangers, that kind of thing. 
Um, and of course, we always want to make sure that they're enjoying the work as well. So a dog that genuinely enjoys greeting members of the public and loves that attention from other people. And how are people responding to these programs? You've been doing it for quite a while, so it's obviously working. Yeah, we only ever see expansion with this program. Mm. So we recently started, um, like you said, visiting staff as well as the patients at BC Children's as well as some other of the larger health authorities, especially with the pandemic. They've been having such a tough time and we're just so glad that we can support them with our program. So this helps with the staff like burnout for nurses and things like that as well? Exactly. Yeah. So it just gives them an opportunity to take a quick break, reset in their day. Obviously, they have some significant challenges with their job, not Mm -hmm. only the amount of work, but the type of work that they're doing. Um, So it just gives them the opportunity to take those five minutes to relax, um, take their mind off the work just for a short time and interact with something that's cute and fluffy and always so excited to see them. I think it makes a really big difference for the nurses and we get that in their feedback as well. So the nurses get to use, experience that then there's patients of course around that get to experience this so it's all positive all around. Absolutely yeah. So if anybody wants to find out more about this how do they do that? So they would contact us directly. Um, they can go to uh, sja.com and they have all of our information about our programs on there. Um, if they are interested in volunteering but they don't have a dog that they think is suitable, okay. we're always just looking for administrative support as well. Okay. And of course, we are a nonprofit, so we graciously accept any <laughs> donations to this program also. Okay. SGA, SJA.com. Is that what you said? SJA.ca. That's CA. correct. Thank you for joining me today, Anna. Thanks so much, George. Have a great day. All right, so you've heard it all over the place. The mayor, that's the mayor, Doug McCallum, announcing his election platform. Here he is announcing it this morning. We are going to build a 60,000-person um, arena in Surrey. <laughs> that's, that's, think bigger, go home. That's Doug McCallum's way. Here he is announcing something else. And there'll be a multi-use arena for all sports. And okay. so uh, we envision um, oh, okay. c- the city is a very big city. We'll be right. bigger than Vancouver in four or five years. We need a sports state. Why he needs it. It's going to be big. It's going to be better. It's going to be huge. 60,000 seats. I've got Francis Beulah now joining me. Uh, Civic Affairs reporter for the Globe and Mail. Francis, 60,000 seat stadium in, uh, in Surrey. You've got to give it to Doug McCallum here. He thinks big. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I'm told that's how Surrey politics works. It's not like in Vancouver where it's, you know, people are really committed ideologically. It's all about who's going to do something for the city, and that's what people there want. And so if you're talking about doing something for the city, Mm -hmm. I mean, people in Surrey love that idea that they're going to get bigger and more important than Vancouver, and they're going to have a stadium that's just as big and, and all the rest of it. I, I mean, I think I not don't have to be a particularly good analyst, and <laughs> others have already said it, to say that is one heck of a big spend, and it's super unclear how that would work. I mean, people still talk about whether BC Place is even financially viable right. and whether it gets enough business. Like, having a stadium out there uh, <laughs> that apparently is not going to have any parking everyone's supposed to arrive by transit so then it's supposed to draw everyone from all over the region mm-hmm. and you know i was talking to doug mccallum recently and he said they don't have enough hotels in surrey for the tournaments that they are hosting now so i can't imagine there's anything like enough hotel capacity uh for that you would need for a stadium like that anyway i mean it is it, it is a big, bold, yeah. 
Build, build it, build it and they will come. Build, build, build it and they will come. The hotels will come. Everything. Hey. I, mean, I mean, here's a guy. I mean, he's, he's the guy. He's, how many times has he been the mayor? He's been several times. Yeah. Um, and his style is very clear to me. He announced mm-hmm. in the last election about the RCMP. He's going to get his own Surrey police force. And he was going to change the whole uh, light rail and move it to a sky train. These are big promises that, that, that people said, you can't do that. And he did it. He did it. Yeah, and I, think I mean, that, those were a bit different. One was just involved, like, convincing the powers that be to switch the, the committed funding from one to another. Right. And TransLink had already in previous studies said that SkyTrain kind of would make more money from, from the start. But, mm-hmm. you know, Diane Watts had insisted on light rail as a way of kind of building up Surrey internally rather right. than just being a commuter suburb. Yep. Um, so, and, and so on. But and and the police, uh, you know, that again, it's been, you know, tossed around quite a bit. And it's not like that again is taking money that exists and moving it to something new. Building a stadium, where would that money come from? Where? Well, I think you're, come on, you, you, this is how it works, Francis. You know this. The NDP want to win in Surrey. The, everybody else they want in Surrey, they want the Valley votes. Uh, they say to the Valley and to Surrey, we're going to build you a giant stadium so you don't need to come to Vancouver anymore. Uh, and suddenly the money will start flowing in because they want those votes. Pavement politics, you know, hey, let's build it and they will come and get those votes. Uh, I totally can see uh, where the funding would come from to get those votes in the next provincial and federal elections. Okay. Well, you're more <laughs> optimistic than me. But I want to remind you, I had forgotten about this, but I want to remind you there was another mayoral candidate in the last election, who promised a stadium in Vancouver. where he would bring back the NBA to it, Fred Harding. <laughs> yes, we'll get to that. now in the news again. <laughs> we'll get to that, but I do want to say that that's Vancouver. <laughs> I would never promise a stadium in Vancouver. I don't think that. I, I just think that Doug McCallum's done some polling. He's seen that people think this would be exciting. This, th- things don't happen like magic in politics. There is stuff, there's data that the, his team must have collected that said this is going to resonate. It's going gonna, it's gonna to completely dominate his campaign. And all he has to say is, hey, I did the RCMP thing. I cut our police force. I did a SkyTrain thing. You don't think I can do this? Watch me. Vote me in. Watch me. And yeah, then people I think there'll be go, a lot of people saying, here, and here's a few other things he promised that didn't happen. <laughs> you can try that, sure, but it's, that's too complicated. And I mean, who name the competition. I mean, that's okay. the problem. Okay. I am going to try and have a little more faith in the voters than you are. You <laughs> no! think they're all a bunch of rubes no, who are just I like, ooh, don't. look at the bread and circuses, people. <laughs> no, but I do think that you get attention uh, <laughs> and you dominate the headlines and you dominate the media and you dominate the conversation by announcing big things. And that's what people think about and they go, well, like who's Ferris that? Wheels? And canals? Yeah, well, canals, that was a Vancouver thing, too, once I remember. Uh, But it was a Surrey thing, too. I can't even remember who announced it. But I I don't know. Sometimes a big thing can work. It seems realistic. Other other times it doesn't. And just, um, you know, my sense when I talk to people in Surrey is that they want things for Surrey. They want, they they believe in Surrey and they Mm -hmm. see it as this interesting vibrant city with a great, you know, parks and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. But they want local stuff. They want community centers. They want, you know, to feel like, like they want the traffic messes to end. I, 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 I don't know. Really? You know, I get the I, sense just, they want to be Vancouver. I think they want to kick our butt. 
I think they want no, to say I think the they next just want to have a really vibrant, healthy community where they are. I oh, mean, yeah. there's a few people who want to, you know, kick Vancouver's butt, and no, no one more than media commentators who love shitting on Vancouver. Oops. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that on the radio? Sorry. Uh, not, I can't, but I guess you can. <laughs> All right, let's get out of Surrey. Let's get out of Surrey. Let's talk a bit about that. I mean, Victoria looks like it'll be interesting. I'm, not, I'm throwing this at you, but I know the mayor there, she's leaving. Mm-hmm. That's an open, wide open. Burnaby looks like the new party in Burnaby. There's lots of really interesting things happening all over the place. Oh, yeah, and the New West. Like, you've right. got one left-winger running against another left-winger, along with, you know, the, the sort of center-right party out yeah. there and Burnaby um, like there's a like a faction that's still loyal to um, Derek Corrigan who aren't totally on board with Mike Hurley and so then there's another party organized of kind of a a, a more mixed group to mm-hmm. support uh, to support um, uh, Hurley and yeah there's a lot of interesting things going on in, in many municipalities. Cash Heed running for Richmond Councillor. Who would have ever right. thought? <laughs> Welcome back, George Affleck, in for Jill and Francis Bula, the uh, the reporter from the Globe and Mail who does a lot of stuff about community <laughs> communities, and one in specifically that she deals with a lot is Vancouver. Francis, the madness is Vancouver. Seriously, what is going on? I was in office for seven years, but I don't think I've ever seen it as crazy as it is now. Well. I'm sure we all have our idea of which parts are crazy. What what do you see as crazy? (laughs) Well, I guess the implosion of the NPA. Let's start there. And you mentioned Fred Harding before the break uh, as the mayoral candidate with John Cooper's departure. Let's start there. This is the party I was a member of. Um, uh, You know, I I was a member for seven years exactly. (laughs) Um, Joined and left. Uh, But it seems to be imploding or has it got hope? There's a hope that they bring this guy, Fred Harding, if that rumor is true. It's 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 never good for a party when you're changing your mayoral candidate like mm-hmm. two months before the election. Like look at Vision, uh, they really right. like they just that, that sank them like a stone. Really losing their mm-hmm. mayoral candidate and bringing Fred Harding in. Uh, you know whatever you think of him, for too many people, it's going to be a signal that they've moved to the fringe right. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy ran for a small party called Vancouver First last time. And, um, you know, he's a retired police officer and he's got particular ideas about, um, you know, how to do things. And I I just can't, if they're trying to sort of um, get people to come back to the NPA by saying, yes, it's the broad tent that it used to be. And, you know, we've got like solid members of our community running. I don't believe that Fred Harding even lives in Vancouver. Uh, So that is really problematic. Now, there's been no official announcement, right, Mm. from the NPA, but there was a very well-reported story by Bob Mackin in Business in Vancouver and everyone and their dog who knows the NPA seems to My sources are pretty solid that it's going to happen next week. So unless Fred gets cold feet after all the coverage he's getting, (laughs) you know what? I don't need this kind of thing in my life. Um, mm-hmm. Believe me, I know how that feels. Uh, so, but the polls are interesting. They came out, and this was a poll, I think, done by a team, which is calling Hardwick's party in Vancouver. Right. And for those who are listening who are not in Vancouver, we have this party system that's very solidified here in the city, but it's more party-ish than ever this time. We have, I think, 10 parties? 10 parties. 10, 10 parties, five, five mayoral candidates, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so a recent poll put... Uh, Kennedy in the slightly in first, I believe, and then called. Call was that how it worked? I forget. How it I worked. think it had. Uh, 
There's I'm Colleen getting mixed second. up no, because no, there actually, was one that had Mark was, Marison sorry, was, and it was, Colleen. It was Ken and for Ken Sim from and, and right, then Colleen right, second, right. which I thought was interesting because mm-hmm. the poll yeah. was done by by Colleen Hardwick. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, polls are polls, but what I saw from that was that there's a tight race for the, the, yeah. the top three, but there's 25% with John Cooper out of basically undecided for sure, mm-hmm. if not higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is makes it, I've never seen that before where there's so many people just there. Nah, I don't know. Nah, I have. have I you? have. I think it was like that last time. A lot of people were undecided because it was such a mess. Like, and there's, yeah. People might not, uh, there's a, you know, a group of people who might not like Kennedy Stewart, but they're just very undecided about where mm-hmm. to go. Like when I've given talks or when I've talked to people, they just um, don't know what to make of who the new parties are. And, and they're trying to figure out, how do I figure out who they are? You know, how do I align them with what I already mm-hmm. know? And people like you and me who study this yeah, kind of, nerds. you know, yeah. like we live mm-hmm. this, yeah. live and breathe it. You know, we have a really good sense. But the general public mm-hmm. re- honestly doesn't. Uh, you know, and that's obvious to me whenever I talk to people. And so um, everyone, I think, is waiting for some uh, the advertising that's going to start in the <laughs> fall. It's going to really clearly try and set out what the brands are like. I mean, I think the NP, the you know, I think ABC is going to be where the new NPA, where what the NPA used to be before uh-huh. they went nuts. You know, like that would be my guess. <laughs> uh, and the NPA is going to be we've been this solid party forever. Um, you know, Colleen Hardwick, uh, in a way, she has the easiest selling job if they can just get themselves to talk to the public a bit more, um, mm-hmm. you know, about uh, we just think that there's been the wrong kind of development and too much development and not enough fiscal control. That's their big thing. Mm-hmm. The NPA is also going to emphasize crime. So I think, you know, the brands will start to solidify and you'll start to see voters moving off the undecided, but in the middle of summer, when all they hear yeah. is a giant list of names every time they're foolish enough to, like, you know, tune in to civic coverage. Um, <laughs> Everybody yeah. reads your stuff, like, from from the top to yeah, bottom. Yeah, I don't understand why they haven't read it and memorized it. Like, what is the <laughs> problem there? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we put you on radio, so that you can expand your audience, Francis. Yeah, yeah. All right, just real quick, on the downtown east side, we're talking about this in the next uh, hour with we've got yeah. Melissa on, uh, the mayor's, you know, and I've talked to some staff at City Hall it's intentionally slow be moving these tents out because oh, yeah. it's it's complicated. But they want to, the staff want to get rid of them. You've been around long enough, as of I, to remember mm-hmm. when staff used to actually wouldn't let tents form on the streets and they would push them along. And for whatever reason, they started letting them. Yeah, I asked about that in the news conference. Like, how did this happen? Yeah. Because I heard that staff actually had to be called back to deal with this. So clearly the city was really caught flat-footed by it. They mm-hmm. didn't expect it. But there did seem to be some kind of giant shift where, um, you know, staff were doing the usual thing, trying to clean up, telling people to pack up their belongings. And all of a sudden there was this incredible resistance, like, no, we're not going to do it. And I'm not really sure where it came from. Mm. You know, there's a very strong activist group down there who Mm -hmm. sort of seems to be defending to the death people's right to live on the sidewalk in in piles of garbage. Um, uh, You know, so I don't know where it exactly is coming from. But um, for sure, the city got caught out, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, by what happened uh, so quickly. Uh, And it, it is actually... I, you know, and believe me, I drive up and down Hastings every day. I've been saying for months, like I've never seen it look yeah, so bad. No. 
but I went, was down yesterday and today. They are clearing out some spaces. You can actually see sidewalk space. Mm-hmm. You can see that they've yep. uh, like moved the tents over so people can get through. At some, there's a couple blocks that are still completely impassable and, and so on. Um, but, you know, Targets. obviously this, this city council, this government, they're not prepared to do what L.A. or Seattle yeah. or Toronto have done and send in, you know, people in riot gear to clear everybody out. That's not going to happen here, I don't think. Not with this council, but maybe with another mayor. All right, Francis, we've got to go. Appreciate you finding time today. Okay, great. Thanks. Have fun <laughs> in the next hour Okay, okay, thanks. George Affleck in for Jill, and I hope you're doing well. I'm here uh, all this week and all next week for Jill, and Jill is filling in for Simi in the mornings. And then uh, after this show is uh, is, uh, is is Jazz Johal's show, and he's going to be in a bit uh, at the end of the show to talk about his show. And you want to stay tuned to CKNW all the time because we have the greatest stuff ever to listen to. All right, so it could well represent one of the biggest missed opportunities in Canadian history. An embattled Europe is clamoring for our natural gas, and one of the world's biggest producers of the stuff... We don't even want to sell it to them. I don't understand this. The German chancellor was in Canada recently meeting with the prime minister, and he made it clear that he wants our natural gas, but we're, we don't seem to be willing to sell it to him. Why? Joining me now to talk about this is Stuart Muir, executive director of the of Resource Works Society, and I think this subject is near and dear to his heart. Hey, Stuart. George, how are you doing? You're absolutely right. It is near and dear to my heart. <laughs> I know you're actually, I think you're even somewhere talking about this right now, but tell me why. I saw the logic that Prime Minister said. He said it's too complicated, too expensive. Is this true? It is expensive. It takes a long time to build. Is it complicated? Um, well, sure, because there's a lot of moving parts, but is it worth doing? Well, there's the biggest project of any kind in Canadian history being built right in British Columbia right now in Kinemat, connected mm-hmm. to the northeast of BC where the gas is. That's the LNG Canada project. And the associated infrastructure and, and, and source of energy. Um, that's driving prosperity across BC. We're experiencing it. You can see it in the numbers. You know, there's been economists saying it's a, it's perceived in, you know, manufacturing and services mm-hmm. all around the province. So right. definitely good. And that's not even finished yet. Once it starts shipping LNG in 2025, and it's a great example of what could happen on the East Coast to help Germany and other European countries out. One ship leaving the harbor in Kitimat will have a value of about $100 million, wow. which is mind-boggling. Yeah. That's crazy. Is there any way to ship that and take it down south and around through the Panama Canal? Well, uh, one of the critical factors about LNG terminals and where you put them is the closer you can be to the customer, whether it's by you know road or by sea, you know the better. Because mm-hmm. if you've ever taken a, a thermos of, of soup to work, um, you know by the end of the day, if you forgot to have it for lunch, it's, it's not as hot as it was. Um, well, LNG ships are a bit like thermoses, and you know you want to right. you want to get them to the destination as quick as you can. So, Panama Canal route to Europe that would add time. Whereas you can get a ship to you know the docks of Yokohama or mm-hmm. coast of China in you know ten, twelve, fourteen days. Um, that's what we do from the west coast. Um, getting something to Hamburg from Vancouver or, or you know or, or Kitimat, um, more time. So that's one of the reasons. And plus. Um, the, the Germans are not part of the consortium, which is uh, Asian countries that have set up all of this investment to make LNG Canada. So those are a couple of reasons. Um, yeah, you could maybe do it, but it would take longer. The, the chancellor from Germany was very you know, clear that he said, we are ready. We'll build these places for the, to receive this stuff as soon as you, know, you tell us. We'll build them. But 
the, the prime minister sort of sloughed it off. And, and, and are you disappointed that the prime minister was sort of not, not, not possible? Like he talked about windmills and hydrogen. And, and Yeah, I, I feel that's a disservice to Canadians who feel that we need all of the energy solutions. You know, I'm involved in a hydrogen project. We're trying to get off the ground. I'm really proud of that. And mm-hmm. I think it is in the future. But we also need to think about the energy present and the energy near future. And for Germany, they rely on natural gas because they're trying to change their energy system so they burn um, cleaner fuels Mm -hmm. so people have electricity. They also have a huge uh, chemical industry, and we get products that we import into our lives from Germany all the time that rely on that. You know, fossil fuels are often derided as something that's going to go out uh, of use. Um, But, you know, frankly, no one's ever shown how you can replace the chemical manufacturing input of natural gas. It's going to be needed for a long time, and German industry is huge. It's starved of the main feedstock, natural gas, that mm-hmm. allows it to make things. It's a, it's a world economic powerhouse that's starved of the stuff it needs. And that's why the chancellor of this powerful country came to Canada. When did he last come to Canada? I don't remember that ever happening. Yeah. I mean, Germany is like the U.S. in, in Europe. It's just like dominates, uh, you know, the way America dominates us. Um, and so not having access. I mean, they made a decision some time ago to move away from nuclear power, which now they've reopened them because of this crisis yep. that we're, they're in. Um, you know, the whole nuclear question is something that I think a lot of countries need to address as far as an energy source. Where do you guys stand on, on nuclear power? Yeah, it's part of the picture in, in Saskatchewan. I was just reading The Economist about Saskatchewan this week. It's Here's a little province we don't hear much about, but they produce all this grain and, and soy and and uranium. Um, you know, we're, we're producing this stuff, and it's getting to markets around the world to make them greener. We have, of course, nuclear in parts of Canada, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to see it developed. It's already being talked about. You know, I'm, I'm in Banff this week talking to a group of energy and climate specialists. I'm here today. One thing I'm hearing about is... SMRs, that's small yeah. modular reactors. That's nuclear that will let, say, the Canadian oil sands be decarbonized. I know we all want to improve the performance of this this needed commodity, and this is one of the ways that will happen. So we this, definitely need this in our life. This is Bill Gates' big thing, too. He's all over that. Yes. And he talks about the Canadian Shield being one of the best places uh, as far as stable place for nuclear power that you can possibly be on Earth. Yeah, we've got those places and we can have those transmission lines going down to where the huge population centers of the United States are, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of millions of people in that northern, northeastern region. Um, we, can, we can serve them with that energy for a long time to come. To go back to the whole natural gassing and building a pipeline across Canada, how long would that take? We're, we're currently building a pipeline right now from, you know, Alberta to sure. Vancouver. It's taken a few years. It took longer to get through the politics than it did the pipeline, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of politics. Quebec politics is particularly thorny. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it, one can understand that the prime minister faces these vexing political questions, <laughs> but he's also the prime minister of this country. Mm-hmm. And we expect him to, if we're to be a G7 member country, and we're in the G7 because, you know, not, not because we have the population of the U.S. Mm-hmm. or the military might of the Americans or or that we're, we're in the G7, this elite tiny group of countries with our tiny population because of our natural resources and our food that we bring to the world. If we're saying, hey, we're going to shut down our farming sector because you know some people don't like fertilizer and we're not going to give people uh, the fuel they need in their lives and the feedstock for manufacturing at the time when they're in deep crisis and having to get that fuel from the most murderous, despised, criminal dictator 
of our era, Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Like, what is wrong with this country? What, what, why does it belong in this dialogue? I think there's a very serious question for the for the people of Canada to reflect on. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, just on the question of how to build a pipeline, okay. So, um, it, it it does take years. Uh, there have been uh, several. Uh, LNG projects for the east coast of Canada, and one of them was uh, rejected by the Quebec government this year for largely political reasons, mm-hmm. and that would have required a pipeline, um, and to build that would take a number of years. But this started back in 2014 when Putin invaded hmm. Crimea, and our own standing committee on natural resources in our parliament had a, a hearing at that time. And I look back on the transcript, 2014, May of 2014. They were told this could happen again, and Canada could get LNG to Europe. It's going to take five, six, seven years to do that. Huh. So we should get cracking now. Guess what year you know that what? is? Yeah, seven years ago. Wow, it's like they listened, and they spent yeah, they they spent probably hundreds of millions of dollars on on the permitting and all the stuff you have to do to do a yep. major capital project. Wasted, burned up. We 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 can't even get a pipeline to America without getting in trouble. So you know. <laughs> Exactly. It's definitely a challenge. The uh, what's that? You know, up north we have uh, hydropower, and that's something that's pretty pretty amazing. And and I think when we talk about electric cars and the government's pushing electric cars, and we're talking about the grids, and you know, I don't know if the last time you were up north to see that what's going on up there. Have you been up there lately? Yep. Um, the the Peace River country. Mm-hmm. I was up there in June, and you know, it's a beautiful place. Often you hear. You know, some of the alarmist stuff about uh, fracking, you know, that's become a word that seems to, when people, when some mm-hmm. people hear it, they, they uh, tense up. But you actually go and see it. You see these green fields. You see the, the wheat fields of the Peace River region. You see the forestry. You see um, the, the, the First Nations way of life there. And you don't see a lot else until you go right up close to where they have the gas wells and you look at how it's being managed and the water part of it is being managed. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, a, a year, a little over a year ago, there was a court ruling, the Blueberry uh, uh, River First Nation decision. Some people will be familiar with that. That basically mm-hmm. led to no more permits for natural gas uh, in the Northeast for one year. And it's only actually in the last few days. This might be a headline. Um, you might want to get a reporter on it. I heard that last week, um, uh, 21 gas uh, well drilling permits were issued, which is great news. And I applaud the work of mm. the the people in Victoria who have been working so hard to get that going again. But, you know, this is caused by a whole host of factors, um, none of which, uh, you know, will, will be um, um, unaddressed by the measures that are happening. And if things go well, we'll see a return of economic activity that will support LNG exports because mm-hmm. you need so many things working. Right. Uh, you know, just one thing not working in that whole chain of of economic value creation for LNG, and then the whole thing, you know, can grind to a halt. So um, it's it's hard work, but yeah. it's obviously rewarding because the you know the chance ask the chancellor of Germany, he would like to see us doing that work. Where does, and for you and Resource Works, where does water, in fact, drinking water fit into the picture? You look at what's going on in California and down in the western states where there's droughts that are just drying up yep. the rivers. Uh, you know, we have a massive um, commodity up here with our fresh water. And, and is that something yeah, so, that's been analyzed by you guys? Well, m- most recently through our Indigenous Partnerships uh, event, which we do every year in May, we've come to realize that in this era, everything has to start with the uh, v- values of respect in the land and the waters that are in indigenous values. Um, 
the courts have told us we must do this, but now mm-hmm. I think our hearts and our heads are telling us we should and want to do this, and it's it's transforming how in British Columbia and I think all of Canada the the approach of uh, starting out from always that first question of all right who are the rights holders here what are the questions for the values how do we put those first and then everything that follows respects that and then you can have success I think the old ways of just you know pushing it through um, clearly no longer suitable no no yeah. and, and and water is is life and. You know, I was talking with an energy executive in, in Alberta yesterday. I, I like to go out uh, at a quiet time of year and, and mm-hmm. get some ideas. And here's someone who knows how to build a pipeline and said, you know what? Maybe one day there should mm-hmm. be a water pipeline built to yeah. refill Lake Mead from, you know, places that have abundant water. You know, Canada is one of those places. Absolutely. It's something worth looking at. I mean, and we should start doing the research now if we know how hard it is to yeah. build a pipeline in this country into the United States. <laughs> exactly. Water or oil, who knows? All right, Stuart, yeah. thanks. Hey, we can do both. <laughs> we can do both. Thanks for joining me, Stuart. Yep, thank you, George.